Revelation 19, I heard the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Once more, they cried out, go figure, hallelujah. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. It's the word, by the way. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, for your spirit, for your word, for the people of God. You are incredible, God. You have ultimately given us yourself. Your Holy Spirit resides within every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, God, we come before you, and there are so many parts of our hearts and our minds and our lives that are um, truly broken. And so we need you to transform us. We need you to change us more and more into the image of Jesus. And, and so as we open your word, as we worship together, eat together, pray together, God, I pray you would transform us from one degree of glory to another, as your word says, from one degree of Christ-likeness to another. God, we are so far from the goal. And so we ask that you would transform us. But God, thank you for your love for us despite our failures, despite our inadequacies, despite our struggles, despite our secrets. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, your word says there is no condemnation, but there is love from you to us. You've covenanted yourself to us. So we just are so thankful. Uh, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only you can do. Some of us really do just need encouragement today. So would you be our encourager? Some of us need comfort. Would you be our comforter? Some of us, our hearts are hard, and we need you to soften us. Would you break us? Lord, we just bring our hearts before you, our minds, and our lives. We pray that you would work in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here. I have the joy to open up God's word with you. Uh, Would you open up your Bibles? Genesis chapter 50. It is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Today, we finish this book. We started Genesis in January of 2018. Now, just so you may be wondering, do you take that long? No, we did a series on doctrines and healthy church and biblical hospitality and a Christmas series and explore God. So we have like spiced it up a little bit, but we're about a year and eight months into the book of Genesis. And uh, next week, if you come back, uh, it's what we call Vision Sunday, but we're going to open up God's Word. There'll be a bit of training uh, in terms of disciple-making next week as we really put our mission back in front of us. If you're new with the church, kind of getting uh, your head and your heart around where we're going and, and what we're passionate about, it be a great Sunday to come. And then the following Sunday, um, we are launching into the book of First Peter. Uh, Pastor Craig of Villa Church East is going to be preaching that as well, as well as, you guys remember Pastor Alex? Um, he is the lead pastor now at Alliance Bible Church in Barlett. They're going to be teaching through First Peter with us as well. I just heard about another buddy in Elgin who's actually starting a series on First Peter. So I'm going to try to bring him into the reins and see if we can get four churches collaborating together and preaching through First Peter together. For sure three. So that's in two weeks and super excited to open that up. We should be done with that by the end of this year. Fingers crossed. Um, if it takes us till 2021, 
Well, call the elders. That's a long series on First Peter. Okay. Um, again, Genesis 50. Uh, if you don't know my wife, she is a licensed um, uh, professional counselor. So she meets with a handful of people, and then she has this tool that she uses with her clients sometimes. The, the tool is called Sachet. Sachet is an acronym, and it stands for Sad, Angry, Scared, Happy, Excited, or tender. And so the, the way you use this tool is you have somebody come in and, and they have to identify the primary emotion that they are coming into this session with. Uh, and so when I look at all of you, if we were all to talk about the primary emotion, um, there would be people all over the board. Now, what we find is most people really struggle to have good vocabulary to describe their emotions. So what this does is it gives you parameters and boundaries, and, and it allows you to kind of just talk about um, what you're bringing into that session. So imagine you say the word scared. Well, obviously, there's a story behind that, right? And so every one of these words it really is a discussion starter, and it kind of just creates an environment of vulnerability, uh, allows you to get to the heart a little bit more quickly. I want to ask you a question in light of this. I want you to imagine and think through the last season of your life. A season can be a month, a season can be a year, it could be 10 years for some of you. I want you to think through the last season of your life, and I want you to pick one of these six words that best describes your last season of life. Now, don't say it out loud. What I want you to do is I want you to take that word and I want you to put it in the margin of your mind. We're going to pull it back out at the end of the sermon. But what, which one of these words best describes how you feel about this last season of your life? Now, life has a way of being very challenging, doesn't it? If you, if you have the joy, the privilege to live for the next 20 years, uh, I, I want to just give you fair warning. You are going to experience some of the most excruciating things that you have never experienced yet. You're also going to have some of the greatest delights that you have not even had yet in life. If you have the joy to live for another 20 years, you are going to go through unimaginable pain, and you're going to experience unimaginable joy. Such is life, isn't it? It's up and it's down, it's left and it's right, it's glorious, it's desperate. And one of the challenges that we're finding is that we, as we engage and interact with so many Christians, is that they love God when life is good, when everything is a delight, but when it gets worse than they expected, we shake our fist at God, we get mad at him, we get upset. We've seen this all throughout Genesis. This has been a very common theme. And one of the things that like, we have to do as a church is we have to train our people, all of us together, to have more grit, to have more endurance, because honestly, you have not even begun to experience the heartache that life has for you. And it's coming. It's going to come in one fashion or another, and I hate to be a bummer. Don't get me wrong, it'll also be, be great, but what we have to be able to do is we have to endure unimaginable hardship in a way that doesn't crush our soul and have us shake our fist at God and lose faith. Now, if there's anybody in the world that should have been shaking their fist at God, it should have been Joseph. This guy's life has been atrocious, terrible, one event after another event. It's very frustrating. And yet this guy, I'll be honest, he has inspired me week in, week out. All the other people in the book of Genesis, losers, okay? You get to Joseph, and I'm like, I'm expecting him. Honestly, we're going into this. I'm expecting, wow, everybody else has failed so miserably and so much. I'm half expecting him to be the same. And, and as we go through this, story after story, week after week, chapter after chapter, chapter, this guy is inspiring. 
Like there is something about this guy that we need to figure out how he does this. And Joseph's not done teaching us yet. So I want to look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. That's where we'll start today. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Let's apply sachet. Sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, tender. What emotion would you assign to Joseph's brothers? Scared. Let's just step back for a moment. They have been living together in the same land. It appears to be in a peaceful way for 17 years at this point in the land of Goshen, in the land of Egypt. 17 years. As far as we know, Joseph has never said a mean word to them. He has never threatened them. Uh, He has only ever cared excellently for them and their spouses and their children and their grandchildren. Joseph has been an incredible host. Something has pretty drastically changed in their family dynamic. And the answer is simple. Their dad, the patriarch, he's dead. And we've watched this actually happen. We've seen families where the matriarch or the patriarch die and all of the siblings go crazy. They turn in on each other. Relationships are over. There's nothing holding it together anymore. Like this is a very common human experience. And so somehow these brothers have it in their mind that something that now that dad is gone, dad was the only thing holding Joseph back from killing us. Why? Because what would they have done if Joseph had thrown them in a pit, attempted to kill them, sold them into slavery, and stole the best years of their life? What would they have done to Joseph? They would have killed him. They can't believe what Joseph, the mercy, the grace, the patience that Joseph has given to them. Now uh, they consider that their dad, Jacob, is the last thing holding Joseph back from actually executing judgment on them. And here's the deal. Um, If Joseph wants to kill them, can anybody stop him? No. Joseph is the second most powerful person in the entire world next to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't care what Joseph is doing. And so as far as these brothers understand it, this is probably going to be the end. Not only is dad gone, but dad threw in this really interesting, we'll just say like curveball into the family dynamic in the moments before his death. So if you remember last week, there was a blessing, and there were 12 brothers, and when you think of a blessing, do you think of a positive thing or a negative? And you would probably say, Net positive, yeah, this is like a good thing. Well, in his dying breath, his dying moments, the dad, at least six out of the 12 are massively rebuked in the blessing. Uh, there's a couple others that appear to be rebuked, but it's hard to tell. But, but, but here's what you know. The dad's dying breath is this. Brother number one, scoundrel. Brother number two, scoundrel. Three, scoundrel. Four, scoundrel. Five, scoundrel. Six, scoundrel. Seven, eight, nine, eh. Jacob, I like him. That's about what you get at the end of this. They're all losers. And so you're like, you're frustrated and you're, you're looking at this and you're like, wow, Jacob. Okay, scoundrel dead. Okay, now the brothers are like, oh no. Not only is he gone, but his last words were words reminding us that our relationship with him is broken. This is not going to go well for us. So here, here's a relational question. Based on the brothers' words alone, though Joseph and the brothers were reunited, were they really, truly reconciled? I actually, I don't think so. Here's, here's a little piece of information that you probably don't know 
unless you have been very intently, verse by verse, studying the book of Genesis. The brothers have yet to apologize or ask forgiveness once in the whole book until this chapter, and we haven't even gotten there yet. They haven't said a word about it. They're here, they're in the land, they're being cared for. Never once has there been personal ownership at all. Now, were they sorry? Yeah, in fact, the author brings you into their their dialogue with each other. They do regret it. Like, do they wish they could go back and do it over? For sure. If they could go back and, like, change all of the scenario, would they change it all? For sure. But they have yet to go to their brother and apologize. Look at verse 16. It says this, So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Listen to even the way it's phrased. It's almost insulting. Your father gave this command before he died. Pause. We actually have no, no knowledge whatsoever of whether or not the dad, Jacob, said this. They could be making this up. Um, so in your community groups, you can debate about it and fight about it. Here's what he says. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And then in verse 17, the brothers chime in and here's what they say. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Let me just like translate. Hey, Joseph, dad said you had to forgive us. So for his sake, forgive us. Okay. Would that satisfy any of you? Let's play sachet. <laughs> what emotion do you primarily feel towards these brothers? Sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, tender. Let me be vulnerable. I'm a little angry. I'm insulted. This is pathetic. 17 years, I've treated you well. And I imagine Joseph saying something like this. Really? You're apologizing now? You're invoking our dead father as a motivation to do this? What took you so long? We've been together for 17 years. So conveniently, now that you're afraid I'm going to kill you, conveniently you're sorry for this? Listen, some people are scoundrels. Can you think of anyone? Put them in your brain. Some people will be scoundrels till the day they die. Scoundrels and children have this in common. They only apologize when they're caught. And I expect this from a five-year-old. Hey, you're in trouble. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then I try to like theologically like rationalize with a five-year-old. And they're like, listen, man, I just don't want my toy taken away. Right? At the end of the day, the heart of a five-year-old that doesn't have the emotional or intellectual ability to process all the implications of harming somebody, honestly, it's the same with a scoundrel. Wise people like Joseph, wise disciples, will take the scoundrel's apology, and I want you to hear me, because they know that what the brothers did, it is literally the best they got. It's not like they've got more to give. The dad just died, and on his dying bed with his final breaths, reaffirms their lack of repentance. One dude, the oldest, slept with his father's wife. 
Jacob brings it up on his dying bed because it's never been reconciled. That's ridiculous. I'm telling you, the brothers, they're scoundrels. But they don't have anything left inside of them. It's like negotiating with a five-year-old boy. You're not going to get a lot out of them. They're not going to understand. If there was a deeper sense of EQ, they would probably use it. If they had more to give, they'd probably give it. When a scoundrel or a child is caught, they literally give you the best they got. And here's what Joseph knows. I can get angry, but they are literally bringing on a silver platter all, all of their ability to repent and apologize. They don't know how to do anything else. And so this is a moment for Joseph. He has two options. And he has to make a choice. Hard heart, soft heart. Hear me, this is a choice. This isn't something that's going to be done to Joseph. This is a decision that Joseph has to make. Let's play another game. What is more fun, a hard heart or a soft heart? Whatever, you can say whatever you want. I think it's a hard heart. It's more fun. It's more indulgent. You get endorphin, right? And then you can act out on a hard heart. And I'll protect myself and punish you, right? Like there's something a hard heart that's like really deeply satisfying, like in the moment. Is it going to go well for you long term? No. What is more natural, a hard heart or a soft heart? A hard heart. So if you're gonna if you're gonna actually experience a soft heart, it's gonna it's gonna take a major decision. What will Joseph choose? Look at verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So um, I really would love a world where I could interview Joseph and bring him up here. That would be way better than this sermon. And here's my questions for Joseph. Joseph, how did you get to this point? How is your heart not hard? How are you not filled with vengeance and rage? Joseph, how are you not mad at God? And then I want to draw it out for Joseph. I want to, I want to say something like, um, you do know that he had the power to stop this. You do know that he had the power to intervene, right? You do know that he had the power to let you die in that pit. He also had the power when your brothers pulled you out to not sell you into slavery. He had the power to not put you in jail. He had the power at every corner of your life to stop this. How are you not mad at God? How is your heart so soft? So there's a secret. We've been dancing around the secret uh, throughout the life of Joseph, but I've been kind of waiting for this last sermon to bring it out. Uh, here's what I want to do to kind of show you the secret to Joseph's soft heart. I want to read to you a handful of passages from the life of Joseph, and you're going to find one word that they all have in common. Genesis 42:24. Joseph has just seen his brothers for the first time, and it says, then he turned away from them and wept. Genesis 43:30. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Genesis 45, verse 2. And he wept aloud. 
so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Genesis 45, 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Are you seeing a theme? Let's keep going. Genesis 45, 15. And he kissed all of his brothers and what's the word? Wept upon them. Genesis 46, 29. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Genesis 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him and kissed him. And finally, back to our verse today, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph, how do you get to this point? I'm angry reading their apology. You are weeping. And I want to be clear. You'll hear this in a minute and you'll see it in the text. These are not tears of rage and anger. Joseph has something that is a Christian virtue that honestly it's just not talked about a lot, but the New Testament does care deeply about it. Joseph has a tender heart. So typically at the end of my sermons, I give you so what's. Um, this is going to be like, my so what's will be the second half of the sermon. So uh, first service went an hour and a half, so we'll be fine on this one. It'll be good. <laughs> But I want, to, I want to put my so what's kind of in the middle here and let, us, let it take us to the end. If you're going to be a mature disciple, you have to learn these two principles. If you're going to live in this difficult world, here it is. Anger hardens, but tenderness transforms. So we're in the car this morning. My uh, children wanted to drive with me, so I get here at about 8 o'clock in the morning. So they came and... And uh, we're in the car, and you know in a minivan, you have the front seat, you have the middle seat, and the back seat. Well, the middle seats move backwards and forwards, so the back seat can have more or less space. And my youngest daughter's in the back, and she says, Snippy, move the seat up. I don't have enough space, something like that. And I'm like, whoa, girl, like, that is not how we speak at all. Say it nicely. And then with total sincerity, the girl just shifts. Like, you can even hear it in her voice. And she's like, Elliot would you please move the seat up so I can have some more space? And Elliot says, sure. Is that enough? Do you need more? And I'm like, what? (laughs) So I took this moment because I know what I'm preaching on, like a little forewarning into the sermon. I said, ladies, tenderness begets tenderness. Have you noticed that when you're snappy, they're snappy in return. When you're angry, they're defensive. You're angry, they're defensive in return. And the, the wise disciple understands that anger hardens. It hardens the heart. It pushes the hardness deeper. But there's something incredible about tenderness that when you receive tenderness, it softens other people. All right, here's a question for you. Um, would you rather be an irritating and negative influence or inspiring to others and glorifying to God? Well, guess what? A hard heart, it's irritating, okay? It doesn't help your relationships in any way, shape, or form, and it doesn't do you any good. I'm not, you want to show, you, you want to inspire me? Don't be a beefcake. Control your emotions. That, that, is, that takes strength and inner fortitude, right? That is difficult. That is a challenge. You show me a man or a woman who can control themselves That is a profoundly amazing thing. All right, ladies, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I know some of you are like, I will not ever respond to the pastor when he speaks. I'm too prideful. I will not do it, right? Fine. The rest of you who are willing, would you just give me an answer? Would you rather your husband's sons and their friends grow in hardness of heart or tenderness? On the count of three. One, two, three. Wow, men. Like, 
I think we are instructed right now. Okay, husbands, dudes, gentlemen, would you rather your wives, daughters, and their friends be constantly reactive and defensive or tender? Gentlemen, on the count of three, one, two, three, tender. I don't know anybody who likes a hard heart. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's not becoming. It's not inspiring. It's not helpful. It's, I, like, I don't think of people with hard hearts and be like, I just want to spend more time with them. They are curmudgeons, grumpy, hate everybody, and let nobody in. It doesn't work. But what is the natural human response to pain in this world? Hard heart. So when you tenderize meat, you tenderize meat for th- three reasons. Let me give you a fourth. First, you tenderize meat to get all of your anger out at someone else on that. That's one. But the actual reason you're supposed to tenderize meat is, number one, it makes the meat easier to cut, it makes the meat easier to chew, and it makes the meat more receptive to spices. Okay. A tender heart means that you will be cut more easily. It means that you will be hurt more quickly. But it also means that you will be able to receive and absorb love from people who love you in a way that no hard heart ever could. There's something I think really amazing that happens with a tender heart. Um, The Holy Spirit, although you are more prone to pain and hurt, the Holy Spirit, when he gives you this tenderness, also gives you grit. The two just go hand in hand. It's this ability you get stronger with every time you're hurt and you're cut. Your tenderness doesn't go away, but your ability to endure it does. Your ability to bounce back and recover shifts and changes with time. It's the hard heart. It's the hard heart that is incredibly dangerous. Hard hearts don't have the ability to receive love. And when they give it, it's a little bit different. There's such a difference between a tender heart loving versus a hard heart trying to impart wisdom. It's different. And I'm telling you that everyone in your life wants you and me to have a tender heart. Been in ministry for 20 years now. And there have been some pretty sad seasons in my own heart where I allowed the hardness of heart to creep in. I want to say this. uh, I don't care what your job is. Are there mean people in your job? Right. Okay. So like we're all on the same plane here. This isn't like a boo-hoo. It's just a reality. Life is hard. Work is hard. People are hard. Everything's hard. Got it. But there have been seasons in my life where I have let the meanness of people harden my heart. And I can almost look back to all of those seasons and I have done the most amount of damage to people in those times. Because my hard heart does not make me able to receive love and it really doesn't give me the ability to love well either. I have a hunch I'm not the only one in the room that when we've given ourselves over to a hard heart, it has affected all of our relationships. Back to Joseph. The brothers just apologized pathetically. Joseph is weeping from a tender heart. And I need you to remember that every word said from now to the end of our sermon today, you need to hear through the lens of Joseph weeping, not some stoic line that you hear in a sermon. What does Joseph's tender heart beget in his brothers? Tenderness. His brothers, verse 18, also came and they fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. 
If he would have like lambasted them and yelled at them or whatever else, they would have been cold. They would have been hard inside. They would have been resistant, right? But it's interesting. His, even his body posture and his weeping and the tenderness of his affect melted these guys. He didn't have to say, I forgive you. They get down on their knees and they submit, not just to his authority, but this is their way of saying, thank you. Scoundrels though they be, Joseph's response softened them. Uh, Mature disciples have learned a second lesson in this difficult world. They learn that God allows, ordains, or permits all things for our good and for his glory. All right, if you have been around Village Church for some time, I've got about six truisms that I say probably 20 times a month, okay? So none of these, if, you're, if you've been around for more than like, I don't know, a month or two should be new. Uh, let me remind you of a couple of them. These are like the most formative, impactful ideas that, that have gotten into my heart and have transformed me. Um, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do, right? I'm like, whoa, when I heard that, I was like, that just... Uh, Someone's going to pay for your sin. It's either going to be Jesus or it's going to be you, your choice. I heard that. I was like, ah. If you knew what God knew, you would do what God did every single time. All things are allowed, ordained, or permitted by God for my good and for his glory. The mature disciple can't just read this and acknowledge it as truth with their head. Their heart must be tender to receive it. Ordains. There are things, sometimes they're very hard, that God orchestrates and makes happen. Allows. There are things that evil humans and demons do, and he steps back and doesn't stop it. Permits. Think of the book of Job, and there are things that the evil one has to come before God, get permission to do, and sometimes God says, do it, but only this far. All things. All things in this world God allows, ordains, or permits for our good and for his glory. Never one or the other, both for our good and for his glory. You have to get this. Watch, watch Joseph's response. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? The answer is no. And, and already Joseph isn't angry at God. Joseph knows God's jurisdiction. He knows her, his jurisdiction. And he is happy to let God do what God does. And he does not need to take the place of vengeance in his life and enact vengeance because that's God's jurisdiction, is it not? And he willingly submits to God's jurisdiction. He's not upset about it. He's not complaining about it. And he's like, you're right. You are scoundrels. You are mean people. You beat me to a pulp. You deserve to die. God's got this thing. I'm not going to do that. And then he goes on and he says this. As for you, you meant evil against me. Call it what it is. You're scoundrels. Who does that to a brother? But God meant it for good. It's kind of hilarious that I got a vision from God about a dream when I was 17 years old. You thought you could kill me and stop God? That's ridiculous. You think you have the power? You don't at all. You meant it for evil? God isn't phased. The promises of God aren't phased by it. God gets done everything he intends to do. He is in control. He is God. God meant it for good. Why? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Hear me. You have to hear this through the lens of a grown man weeping. You have to hear this through the lens 
of a grown man whose heart is tender to God and whose heart is tender to his scoundrel brothers. So people want um, preachers at this moment to say, okay, um, Pastor Michael, uh, I want you to give a defense for how come God can be good and allow evil in this world, and here's what I know. Um, Right now, I'm just not going to do that. I actually don't think that's the biggest question that is pressing us in this text right now. But here's what I do know. Even if I did, if your heart was hard, you wouldn't receive it anyway. Why? Because hard hearts can't absorb truth and love. But this is the kind of principle that is only understood if you have a tender heart to God. That is it. So if you want more on that, on January 27th, 2019, um, Pastor Craig and I did a sermon on why does God allow pain and suffering? If your heart is tender, go listen to that sermon. Here's the question I want to answer. Joseph, will you tell me how to have a tender heart to the scoundrels in my life? How is your heart not hard? How do you tame vengeance? How are you not mad at God? I don't know all the answers, but here's what I do know. Something happened in jail. Something happened in the pit. God did some major work on this man. Because from the moment the brothers showed up, Joseph's heart was tender. Look at Genesis 45. I'll put it on the screen, verses 4 and 5. But this is him just telling his brothers who he is for the first time. They're coming face to face. And here's what he says. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they're like, ah, you're going to kill me. And he said, and then they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Okay, if you just came face to face for the first time with the people who tried to ruin your life, would your heart be tender? No. I mean, maybe one or two of you, you're enigmas. I don't understand you. This guy, I'm just like, whoa, Joseph. I got I to gotta pay more attention. You're doing something here. And then he goes on to verse 21. Let's go back to Genesis 50. He says, don't, don't be afraid. Yes, I could kill you and all your families and I can never get away with that. <laughs> don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. He speaks right to their fear, right directly to it. Are you going to kill our children? You're going to kill my spouse? What are you going to do? I know we're terrible. I know we deserve it. I know we can't ever measure up. I know nothing could ever make right what we did. And he just speaks to them. And then this is the part of it, this last verse of 21, that just shows you how mature Joseph really is. It says this. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Let's be honest. Who needs to be comforted more, Joseph or the brothers? Joseph. You ruined the guy's life. You kidding me? And here he is comforting the scoundrels, speaking kind and tender words to them, speaking words of hope, killing the fear in them, ministering to them. I'm telling you, whatever Joseph has, I got to figure this thing out. All right, let's come back to Sachet. Sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, tender. As you look at the last season of your life, what emotion would you assign to it? It has been 34 minutes and 54 seconds, so I'm hoping that you have had enough time to assign maybe a dominant emotion of the six. Uh, I want to draw your attention to two of them. I want to draw your attention to angry and tender, to the softness of heart and the hardness of heart. Anger is one of these experiences that is not, we are not created to be able to live in it too long. 
It corrupts us. It destroys us. Ephesians says, when you are angry, get rid of it before the night's over. Don't go to bed with it because it just corrupts you and it gives the evil one an opportunity to negatively impact you. The book of Hebrews picks up this theme and says, when anger turns into bitterness, right? That's, that's this like, this vomitous attitude that comes out of us. That's just always negative all the time, right? Then it corrupts and defiles the people around us. Like if you let it sit too long, it ruins you and it ruins everybody else around you. And then you have this tenderness, which is an openness to love, but also, honestly, a unique openness to, to hurt and pain as well. Um, you have this tenderness, which is not seeking vengeance, but it honestly, at times, is willing to choose love and pain over rejection and a hardness of heart. Both of these seasons require the help of the Holy Spirit profoundly. If you, if you are in an angry season, uh, this is not meant to condemn you. It's not meant to shame you. It is real. I have been there. Some of you are there. You may not be there yet, but it's coming. And if you're in the season of anger, I want to I just, I want to give to you this incredible gift. Run to the Holy Spirit. He is the helper and the comforter and the con- convictor and the encourager. He's the trainer. He is given to you by God to help you. Run to the Holy Spirit. Some of you are like, give me four easy steps to overcome my hard heart. I'm just going to tell you three things. And they're not even steps. You need to run to the Holy Spirit. You need to open up God's word. Do a Google search of tenderness and kindheartedness all throughout uh, the New Testament. See what can just labor in these verses and sit in them and reflect on them. And then find the people of God and start talking about it. Unconfessed sin, undiscussed sin, untalked about sin, it just grows in power in the dark places of our heart. And so tomorrow uh, night, my community group meets for the first time, and, and yours are meeting throughout the week. And here's the first question um, of the year of our new community group season. Um, look at the past season of your life. What's the emotion? Now, you're going to be so tempted to, oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't know if I'm happy. Hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Sure. But there's something about the people of God where you come before them and you just choose vulnerability. Now, I'm not saying be dumb. I'm not saying be unwise. But I am saying that this trifecta of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God are an incredible trifecta that God has given you to push you in the direction towards a tender heart. The book of Genesis, it begins with chaos. God intervenes and brings order. Then... The people of God, what do we do? They make chaos. There's murder and betrayal and vengeance and this and that and Babel and destruction and Noah and the list goes on, right? And what does God do every single time? He swoops into the chaos, plucks out a group of people, and he brings order and beauty. I mean, I'm going to be honest. My heart is, is chaos. Your heart is chaos. And this is just what God does. From, beginning of the, from the beginning of the book of Genesis to the end, and God, throughout all of it, is intervening. He's bringing order out of chaos and fulfilling his promises one at a time. And he has promised to make you more like Christ. He has promised to be your helper. He has promised to intervene. He has promised to help you. And this is your heart, whatever it is, your life, all that, whatever. You might be the scoundrel for all I know. And he has promised to be your helper. Run to the spirit of God, the word of God, and the people of God. And this is the best time to start. Run into them. Your people might not be in this church. Awesome. Run to the people of God wherever you have them. Run to them. Do not let anger take that. And then you might be in a tender place. It's okay. I don't know why people are afraid to say it, but it's like, 
If you tell people you're tender, they're not going to be like, oh, that's weird. Oh, let's talk about it. If they do, then get new friends. Go to a different group. <laughs> if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, period. No questions asked. Can't lose it. Can't get rid of it. If you are not a believer, ignore everything we said up to this point. It doesn't matter. Because you will never get the help you need unless you have the Holy Spirit who only comes through trusting in Jesus Christ, period. That's it. You will never, this is hard, but it's just biblical and true, you will never have the Holy Spirit until you place your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead, period. And one of the best things that I could just give to you would be a pure, simple gospel message with no fluff. You are a sinner and you need a savior. Someone is gonna pay for your sins. It's either gonna be you or it's gonna be Jesus, your choice. I pick Jesus. He can bear the weight of my sins. I cannot. He has done it for me on the cross. I could not endure it. He has paid the price. I didn't have the funds to pay. He's given us everything that we need to have our sins forgiven. And he does not ask you to be good enough. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. I tell you, I could weave these into every one of my sermons. They're my favorite. They are my heart language. But I needed to hear those, and I think some of you need to hear them too. Trust in Christ today. Again, my so what for you is run to the Spirit, run to the Word, and run to the people of God. Kill a hard heart. Grow in tenderness. Do whatever it takes. We're going to celebrate communion now, and I think this is just a fitting place to cast our eyes upon Jesus. And we are taking back 2,000 years to a real historical moment where the wrath of God was righteously poured out on Jesus for our sins in our place. And we remember that that should have been us, but Jesus took our punishment for us. And, and the benefits, I'm telling you, like let, let these things be such an encouragement to you today. Your sins are forgiven if you trusted in Christ. No condemnation. The Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in you despite our stupidity and inadequacy. You can't get rid of him. And he's there to help you overcome your hardness of heart and your anger. And so what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to remember what our God has done for us. And if you're new with us, you might be wondering, can I partake of communion at Village Church? Here's our simple rule. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I could care less where you go to church. If you are a brother and sister in Christ, let's partake of communion together. If you've never trusted in Christ or you're not ready to do that yet, let the elements pass. To partake of communion is to make a proclamation, I believe. You proclaim, I have the Holy Spirit. You actually make a proclamation that, that he is your helper. I mean, there's a lot that we say. We proclaim that we believe that salvation isn't for good people. We believe that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. I mean, you make a lot of proclamations by, by eating a little piece of bread and some juice. It's a big deal. So if you're not there yet, there's no pressure whatsoever, but there's no need to partake. Nobody will look down on you, judge you, etc. So here's what we'll do. We're going to have just a time of silence opportunity to reflect, to pray to God, to remember what he's done for you, maybe to confess. Um, when that's done, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together. The elements will be passed out as we sing, and if you would just hold on to them until the end, I'm going to come back up and read some scripture, and we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have some time of silence with God. <laughs>